Jason here, another episode of Zion ID. Today's episode is titled 144,000. Uh, in the last episode, we discussed uh, the false miracle that has to do with the body of the Antichrist. You know, the great deceiver, the great imitator who imitates a resurrection. Uh, God allows this to happen to give, you know, further testing to all the unbelievers. Well, in keeping with the opposition of all things, the scriptures also have some really positive elements concerning the topics of resurrection, translation, uh, that will happen prior to Jesus' second coming. So it's not just the Antichrist. It's not all negative. Uh, and that's where the reference to 144,000 comes in. Um, I quote now from Eric Brandt, the book of Revelation, Things Which Must Shortly Come to Pass. He says, John identifies two groups in his account. The first is an assembly of 144,000 high priests from the tribes of Israel, who, as we shall see, gather with Christ on Mount Zion. The second group is a numberless host of beings assembled from all of the nations, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, all praising God. Scholars who have studied the language of John and considered the meaning of the number 144,000 generally do not accept it as a literal value, even though the seer heard the number in the vision. One commentator calls it a suspiciously tidy order of numbers that is much more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. Richard Draper provides perhaps the most sound explanation of the core meaning of the number. 12 represents the priesthood. Biblical people squared the number to amplify the meaning. Thus, this number, 144, suggests a fullness of priesthood authority. John gives an image of superlative quantity by multiplying it by 1,000, representing completeness. In this way, he shows the strength and breadth of the priesthood, um, in the latter days, in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So John's symbolic and impressive number, 144,000, represents an impressive body of priesthood holders ordained out of every nation to administer the everlasting gospel. They are ordained by the authority of the four angels to whom it is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. That's from DNC. 77. So that's a pretty good explanation, I think, of what the number 144,000 symbolizes. It's a fullness of the priesthood. Well, some of the righteous people living on earth prior to the second coming will require an additional layer of protection when it comes to surviving and thriving in the final three and a half years of tribulation. It's very well known that at the second coming, Jesus will usher in the first resurrection. Uh, the union of body and spirit in perfect form is one of the primary gifts of Jesus' atonement. Those famous words, He is risen, are three of the most important words ever uttered. We celebrate the resurrection each year at Easter and hope that Jesus' gift will one day be ours to experience. But what happens before the first resurrection? The scriptures present some interesting doctrines on the matter, so let's dig in. 
A lesser degree of resurrection is translation. We know of a few who have been translated. A person that has been translated is referred to as a translated being. Well, according to the LDS Encyclopedia, Enoch, Elijah, Moses, John the Apostle, the three Nephites, and others have been previously translated. A translated being is akin to a resurrected person with the exception that a translated being has never died and has a body with less power than a resurrected being. According to Parley P. Pratt, ordinary human beings are said to have a telestial body. People who are translated are said to have a terrestrial body, and people who are resurrected are said to have a celestial body. Those who are translated beings are said to be changed so that they do not experience pain or death until their resurrection to immortality. Um, Both translated and resurrected beings can be eternally young and fit, not subject to illness or injury, and spend their existences as ministering angels, doing things that require physical bodies to perform. For example, where a disembodied spirit can record events as a witness and offer comfort or advice, a physical body is required to perform ordinances, such as laying on of hands. According to Parley P. Pratt, a translated being does have a terrestrial body. The terrestrial body would be different from the terrestrial glory of heaven, just as the present world is considered telestial, but is not of the telestial glory of heaven. Translated beings with terrestrial bodies can appear or disappear the way the resurrected Jesus did in the 24th chapter of Luke. However, those who have resurrected celestial bodies have more power than those with terrestrial bodies. A person who has been translated still has to be resurrected after the second coming of Christ to obtain a celestial body. Well, um, as we've discussed previously um, in a podcast, I think it was probably titled Dunamis, where we talked all about virtue. Um, The human body is absolutely incredible. Uh, One of my favorite talks given by Russell M. Nelson was called The Magnificence of Man, and we quoted it extensively, again, in that prior podcast. Um, But in that talk, you know, President Nelson, who was previously a heart surgeon, talked about the miracle of our beating heart, the miracle of our sight through eyes, our hearing, our involuntary, our voluntary systems, the light we radiate, the virtue we can store. It's just so faith-promoting to consider the reality of divine innovation, us, in contrast even to the greatest of modern technological innovations. So there's so much in store for these physical bodies on this path that we're all on from mortality to immortality. And some of those changes might be coming at us quicker than you might expect. Um, Let's review some of these individuals who we know were previously translated. In DNC 107, 48 and 49, it says, Enoch was 25 years old when he was ordained under the hand of Adam. And he was 65 and Adam blessed him. And he saw the Lord and he walked with him. And he was before his face continually, and he walked with God 365 years, making him 430 years old when he was translated. Hebrews 11, 
chapter 5 from the Bible says, By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. In Ether 1534 it says, Now the last words which are written by Ether are these, Whether the Lord will that I be translated, or that I suffer the will of the Lord in the flesh, it mattereth not. If it so be that I am saved in the kingdom of God, amen. Again, I think this collection of scriptures shows that even though this isn't something that we might talk about on a regular basis, it is throughout all of the standard works. Um, In the New Testament, we read of John's experience with the Savior in which he asks to tarry longer. Well, in Doctrine and Covenants section 7, we get additional information. It says, And the Lord said unto me, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? For if you shall ask what you will, it shall be granted unto you. And I said unto him, Lord, give unto me power over death, that I may live and bring souls unto thee. And the Lord said unto me, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Because thou desirest this, Thou shalt tarry until I come in my glory, and shalt prophesy before nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And for this cause the Lord said unto Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me. But thou desirest that thou mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom. I say unto thee, Peter, this was a good desire. But my beloved has desired that he might do more or a greater work yet among men than what he has before done. Yea, he has undertaken a greater work. Wherefore, I will make him as flaming fire and a ministering angel. He shall minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation who dwell on the earth. And I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. And unto you three I will give this power and the keys of the ministry until I come. Verily I say unto you, ye shall both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. Um, Beyond John, beyond Enoch, we know that when Jesus came to the Nephites in the Americas to visit his other sheep, there were three of those Nephite disciples who also desired the same gift as John. We read about it in 3 Nephi chapter 28, starting in verse 6, it says, And he said unto them, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry, before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death, But ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. Um, And here Jesus gets specific about um, the characteristics of being translated. Verse 8 says, And ye shall never endure the pains of death. But when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, from mortality to immortality. And then shall ye be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. And again, ye shall not have pain, while ye shall dwell in the flesh. Neither sorrow, save it be for the sins of the world. 
And all this will I do because of the thing which ye have desired of me. For ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me, while the world shall stand. And for this cause ye shall have fullness of joy. And ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. And ye shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father, and the Father and I are one. So what a tremendous thing it is to have this desire that John had and the three Nephites have. Jesus makes it very clear that this is what constitutes a fullness of joy, and this is how we become even as he is and even as the Father. Verse 11 says, And the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me. And the Father giveth the Holy Ghost unto the children of men because of me. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he touched every one of them with his finger, save it were the three who were to tarry. And then he departed. And behold, the heavens were opened, and they were caught up into heaven, and saw and heard unspeakable things. And it was forbidden them that they should utter. Neither was it given unto them power that they could utter the things which they saw and heard. And whether they were in the body or out of the body, they could not tell. For it did seem unto them like a transfiguration of them. And they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state, that they could behold the things of God. But it came to pass that they did again minister upon the face of the earth. Nevertheless, they did not minister of the things which they had heard and seen because of the commandment which was given them in heaven. And now, whether they were mortal or immortal from the day of their transfiguration, I know not. But this much I do know. According to the record which hath been given, they did go forth upon the face of the land and did minister unto all the people uniting as many to the church as would believe in their preaching, baptizing them. And as many as were baptized did receive the Holy Ghost. And they were cast into prison by them who did not belong to the church. And the prisons could not hold them, for they were rent in twain. And they were cast down into the earth, but they did smite the earth with the word of God, insomuch that they, by his power, they were delivered out of the depths of the earth. And therefore they could not dig pits sufficient to hold them. And thrice they were cast into a furnace and received no harm. And twice they were cast into a den of wild beasts. And behold, they did play with the beasts as a child with a suckling lamb and received no harm. During the sixth seal, according to the book of Revelation chapter 7, Uh, there was a fullness of the priesthood restored to the earth. We know this to be true. John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood to Joseph Smith. Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek priesthood. Through missionary work, the priesthood has spread throughout the world, throughout all the tribes of Israel. Well, one of the crowning blessings for the 144,000 or those who have entered into a fullness of the oath and covenant of the Melchizedek priesthood, be it by the laying on of hands or by entering into an eternal temple marriage covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is the following promise as stated in Revelation chapter 7, 
verses 13 to 17. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So those who come out of great tribulation um, receive the same description as previous people who were translated, right? You hunger no more, thirst no more. The light doesn't matter. You have your own light, the light of Christ. When describing Israel in the last days, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10, They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. In a recent talk from April 2018, President Russell M. Nelson said the following, It is a remarkable blessing to serve in the Lord's true and living church with his authority and power. I'm sorry, I didn't give the title of this talk. I I think it's something like ministering with power and authority. Um, So continuing, the restoration of the priesthood of God, including the keys of the priesthood, opens to worthy Latter-day Saints the greatest of all spiritual blessings. We see those blessings flowing to women, men, and children throughout the world. We see faithful women who understand the power inherent in their callings and in their endowment and other temple ordinances. These women know how to call upon the powers of heaven to protect and strengthen their husbands, their children, and others they love. They are spiritually strong women who lead, teach, and minister fearlessly in the callings with the power and authority of God. How thankful I am for them. Likewise, we see faithful men who live up to their privileges as bearers of the priesthood. They lead and serve by sacrifice in the Lord's way with love, kindness, and patience. They bless, guide, protect, and strengthen others by the power of the priesthood they hold. They bring miracles to those they serve while they keep their own marriages and families safe. They shun evil and are mighty elders in Israel. I am most thankful for them. Now, may I voice a concern? It is this. Too many of our brothers and sisters do not fully understand the concept of priesthood power and authority. They act as though they would rather satisfy their own selfish desires and appetites than use the power of God to bless his children. I fear that too many of our brothers and sisters do not grasp the privileges that could be theirs. Some of our brethren, for example, act like they do not understand what the priesthood is and what it enables them to do. 
Well, in that talk, um, in fact, hat tip to the work of Sister Stoddard, she alerted us to three very important footnotes that President Nelson entered into his talk um, when he said, I fear that too many of our brothers and sisters do not grasp the privileges that could be theirs. The first footnote, um, and it's incredible how these three footnotes thoughtfully build upon one another. The first is Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, 19 through 22. It says, And this greater priesthood administereth the gospel, and holdeth the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof, and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. And with emphasis, verse 22 says, For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. So the priesthood is prerequisite to beholding the presence of God. The second footnote is DNC 107, 18 and 19. The power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood is to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens opened unto them, to commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So through the priesthood, it is our privilege to enjoy the second comforter, even the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus. The third footnote is found in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14. I'll read verses 28 to 32. It being after the order of the Son of God, which order came not by man nor the will of man, neither by father nor mother, neither by beginning of days nor end of years, but of God. And it was delivered unto men by the calling of his own voice, according to his own will, unto as many as believed on his name. For God, having sworn unto Enoch and unto his seed with an oath by himself, that every one being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth. Um, here, let's see. Uh, to break every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. Again, emphasis, final verse 32. And men, having this faith, coming up unto this order of God, were translated and taken up into heaven. So basically, the 144,000 are those who have experienced a fullness of priesthood blessing, priesthood power, priesthood authority, even to the point of experiencing the second comforter, having their calling and election made sure, and operating among mortals with a translated body in order to be protected 
from the days of tribulations and desolations. Just like the three Nephites, no sickness, no hunger, no pain. Prisons cannot hold them. Fire cannot burn them. Um, now let's read 3 Nephi chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, a verse of scripture that we have quoted extensively. Let's read it with new eyes. It says, And my people who are a remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Their hand shall be lifted up upon their adversaries, and all their enemies shall be cut off. Yea, woe be unto the Gentiles, except they repent. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Father, that I will cut off thy horses out of, their, out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds. Speaking further of this remnant of Jacob, who shall be among the Gentiles as a lion, DNC 87, 5 through 8 says, And it shall come to pass also that the remnants who are left of the land will marshal themselves and shall become exceedingly angry and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. And thus with the sword and by bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn and with famine and plague and earthquake and the thunder of heaven and the fierce and vivid lightning also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of an almighty God until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. That the cry of the saints and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Wherefore, stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come. For behold, it cometh quickly. Thus saith the Lord. Amen. Um, back to this book by Eric Brandt. He talks about the Salt Lake Temple, the symbolism found on the outside. The eastern spires on the Salt Lake Temple represent the presidency of the Melchizedek Priesthood, who hold the keys of the sealing powers restored by Elijah. The seal of the living God represents the powers, protections, and ownership associated with the new and everlasting covenant. Individuals who remain faithful, in spite of earth and hell, have the seal of the Father placed upon them by the Holy Spirit of promise. This means they will be protected in accordance with their life's mission, and their calling and election is made sure, wherein they receive the promise of eternal life. In the vision that John had in Revelation chapter 7, there are angels who are prohibited from bringing the winds of judgment upon the world until the season of preparation and harvesting is fulfilled. They are commanded to hold back, until the everlasting gospel can be preached as a witness and a warning, and until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. That's Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. 
The stalwart and honest will be gathered, fortified, and are destined to become a pure and powerful people according to their diligence. They will abide the foretold calamities. The scriptures provide a number of examples illustrating the significance of placing a sign or mark upon the servants of the people of God. But what John sees is not a sign or a mark, but is a seal placed upon the worthy through the authority brought by this angel who ascends from the east. It is the seal of the Father. Before the winds can be released with full fury, the servants of God must receive the seal of the living God in their foreheads. This is an essential prerequisite to prepare and strengthen them to withstand and overcome the great calamities and tribulations destined to sweep across the earth. In this process of sealing them to him, they become his sons and daughters. The Lord explained to Abraham the means by which the seal is extended. Behold, I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee. That's Abraham chapter 1 verse 18. The placing of the name of God upon the servant is accomplished through the priesthood and the associated ordinances administered only through the authority or power. Great blessings come when the Father's seal is placed on an individual or a people. First, like the mark spoken of, the seal is a symbol of protection. Those so marked are preserved against the plagues, wars, and natural calamities to be poured out when the cup of God's wrath is full. King Benjamin taught, Therefore I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life. That's Messiah chapter 5, verse 15. Such defenses will prove critical if the servant is to accomplish their mission while in mortality. Let's see if there's a few other um, quotes from this book. There is. Um, Let's see, where do we want to pick this one up? Elder David A. Bednar provides valuable insight into this process. The word sealing does not refer exclusively to the ordinance of eternal marriage performed in the house of the Lord. Rather, I am using this particular word as it's explained in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the testimony of the gospel of Christ concerning them who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given, that by keeping the commandments they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins and receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands by him who is ordained and sealed unto this power, and who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. So that's DNC 76 verses 50 through 53. Now let's emphasize Elder Bednar's quote. 
The Holy Spirit of promise is the ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. When sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, an ordinance, vow, or covenant is binding on earth and in heaven. Receiving this stamp of approval from the Holy Ghost is the result of faithfulness, integrity, and steadfastness in honoring gospel covenants in the process of time. However, this sealing can be forfeited through unrighteousness and transgression. Purifying and sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise constitute the culminating steps in the process of being born again. Um, Back to Elder Brandt. In this way, the members become a Zion people, just as the people of Enoch and Melchizedek did whose lives reflect the laws and character of Christ, a holy nation, as it says in 1 Peter 2.9. President Wilfred Woodruff told the saints that Jesus will never receive the Zion of God unless its people are united according to celestial law, for all who go into the presence of God have to go there by this law. Enoch had to practice this law, and we shall have to do the same if we are ever accepted Um, of God as he was. I think we'll end there. Um, The 144,000 is mentioned also in Revelation. Um, Let's see, which chapter is it here? Yeah, Revelation chapter 14. Starting in verse 1, it says, And I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred um, and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. Well, what song are they talking about? They're talking about the song. Let's see if I can find it here. In DNC, oh, I didn't even bring my DNC out here. We've quoted it earlier. It's the Song of Zion from DNC 133. And According to Revelation 13, the only ones who will sing that song, the only ones who will know that song, are those who have received of a fullness of the priesthood, which means taking on the second comforter, which means receiving protection from times of tribulation, even through the gift of being translated. Verse 4 said, These are they which were not defiled with women, Uh, they were moral, right? They kept their covenants. It says, for they are virgins. I don't think the word virgin there uh, refers to, you know, the way we refer to the word virgin, because again, these are high priests. These are husbands and wives who have been sealed in the temple. It says, these are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. 
So it's pretty cool to think that after all of the tribulation leading up to the second coming of Jesus, that in the end, the Lamb will stand on Mount Zion and with him will be the 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads.